Hello and welcome everyone. It's really wonderful to be with you. I want to wish you a Merry Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year on this, the 2nd of January. I don't know about you and how your Christmas and New Year's went. We spent ours in isolation, so that was very exciting and I know I can sympathize with at least some of you. But it is really good to be back and it's good to be sharing and to be preaching with you again. It's been a little while for me, so I'm looking forward to leading you into our new series that we are starting today. And we're starting a series on prayer. Over the last while in the life of our church, we've really experienced the power and the significance of prayer. And it's been incredibly encouraging to me as we have gathered together to pray. And as I've received messages from others in our congregation assuring me of your solidarity in, with us in prayer. And I believe that we've seen God work in a significant and in a powerful way amongst us, even though it has also been incredibly hard to bear. And I believe that God is preparing us as a church for his work in us as we go forward into 2022. And the role of prayer in this journey just cannot and should not be understated. See, without prayer, we just wouldn't be where we are now. Without prayer, the mess would be bigger. The pain would be deeper. The loss would be greater. But now we enter into a new year, and yes, we're, we're kind of smarting, and, and we're licking our wounds, but we are deeply aware of the movement of God among us. And we are expectant for the things that He is going to do. And I really believe that that is as it should be, because prayer is the posture of the Christian. It's that enduring pattern of dependence upon the most holy and almighty God that suffuses our lives. And it's when our lives are lived out of this pattern that we most effectively live out our calling as God's agents in our world. And so starting today, for the next four weeks, we're going to spend some time focusing on prayer. We're going to look at the prayers of some of the men and women of God and how God has acted in response to those prayers in the scripture. And my hope is that as we do that, we're going to grow and develop in us this deep prayerful dependence that we're going to see in these men and women that we see in Jesus that God wants us to live out and that he's modeled for us in Jesus. Today we're going to begin with one of scripture's most famous prayers. It's the time that Abraham bargained with God. And you can find the story in Genesis chapter 18, although most of it will come up on the screen as well. But before we jump right in, let's we need to set the scene a little bit. Let's find out what's going on. So for those of you not super familiar with the Abraham story, God calls Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 to come with him to a new and a distant land, a place far away from where he currently lives. Doesn't tell him where that is. He just says, come along, follow me. And so Abraham decides to do that. And with him goes his family and his household and his nephew Lot and their family and household. By the time they reach, we reach Genesis chapter 13, Abraham and Lot's families and their herds have become so numerous. They can no longer travel together. It's getting really awkward. There's simply just not enough space. There's not enough land. There's not enough pasture to sustain both of these families in the same place. And so Lot heads off towards the Jordan plain, and he eventually settles in the city of Sodom. And then a little while later, Sodom gets raided by a bunch of other kings, and Lot and some of the people of Sodom are taken captive. But Abraham comes to Lot's rescue, Lot and the others are able to return home. 
Some time after that, God appears to Abraham and promises him a progeny, which after a few years of waiting, you might remember, leads to the whole Hagar, Ishmael fiasco. They try to fulfill the promise on their own terms and make a bit of a hash of it. And then 13 years after that, we pick up our story where Abraham is camping under the trees of Mamre and three strangers walk into his camp. And they promise Sarah a child. And the first part of the story and the interaction with these three strangers happens in the beginning of Genesis chapter 18, the first half of Genesis chapter 18. And we pick up our story from the end of their meal. It says this, Genesis chapter 18 from verse 16. When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. So the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, presumably to Abraham, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great, and their sin so grievous, that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous people? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? The Lord said, if I find 50 people in the city of Sodom, uh, 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, What if the number of the righteous is just five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city for a lack of five people? If I find 45 people, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again, he spoke to him. What if there were only 45? He said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found? He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said, Now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found? He said, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And when the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left and Abraham returned home. So that's our passage of scripture, and I think it's loaded with really great stuff. But it raises, I think, two interesting questions that I think it's significant that we just address briefly first before we dig into what this passage is going to teach us about prayer. So the first thing I want to talk to us about is who are these three men? Who are these three men that that arrive at the beginning of Genesis chapter 18 and leave at the beginning of the passage that we're reading? Who are they? And the theological term for what they are, who they are, is called a theophany. A theophany is a manifestation of God. You see, God is so great and he's so holy that we cannot survive complete exposure to him. God tells Moses this 
in Exodus chapter 33. He says, I'm going I'm to hide you in the cleft of the rock. I'm going to pass by you. You can see my back. But if you see my face, you will die. For no one can see the face of God and live. Right? So God sometimes, particularly in the Old Testament, would manifest himself to people in a limited way so that he could commune with his people in a way that they could understand and appreciate. This is something that God does several times in the Old Testament, and he takes different forms when he does this. Do you remember the man who wrestled with Jacob and eventually gave him that kink in his hip in Genesis chapter 32? What about the, the angel that appears to Moses in the burning bush and says to him, take off your shoes because the ground on which you stand is holy? What about the smoking firepot that travels between the sacrifices in Genesis chapter 18, confirming God's covenant with Abraham. All of these are, are just examples of times where God manifests himself either as, as a man or as an angel or even as an object so that he can commune with his people. And these theophanies ultimately culminate in the person of Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate theophany. He's the Christophany, if you will. And, and that's what we have happening here. In this case, we're going to see that one of these three men was God, and two of them were his angels. And, and we know this for, for a collection of reasons. Firstly, if you look at the level of hospitality that Abraham showed to these three men, it really goes above and beyond. There's a level of deference that Abraham is giving to these three strangers that enter his camp that goes far beyond what's necessary for normal hospitality. Secondly, Genesis chapter 18 verse 1 says, the Lord appeared to Abraham. And again in verse 13 it says, and the Lord said to Abraham. So we clearly told God is a part of this. Thirdly, in Genesis 18.22, it says, the other men turned and headed towards Sodom, but the Lord remained with Abraham. And then in 19.1, it says, that evening two angels came to the entrance of the city of Sodom. So, from all of that, we can conclude that of the three men that came into Abraham's camp, one was the Lord, two of them, two of them were his angels. Okay. So, just thought we'd, we'd stick that up right up front. Second thing to, to throw out right up front before we dig into prayer is, did it strike you as interesting? The balance that we find in this passage between God's choice to go and investigate something and the th- the idea that God actually already has perfect knowledge. So, so if God really has perfect knowledge, why does he need to go down and have a look? You know, to just, just, just check it out, scope it out. Does God really not know? This is something I wrestled with for, for quite some time. Not because I believe that God doesn't know, but because it seems like a plausible inference from this passage. And so... If we want to, let's test that interpretation. That's, that's what we need to do. And the best way to test it is to see, does it align with what the rest of Scripture teaches about God's knowledge? And there's a lot that we could quote here, and this is not a sermon on that. So I'm going to just pick three passages that I think sum up what Scripture teaches about what God knows. First is 1 John chapter 3, verse 20. It says, whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart. He knows everything. He, I mean, he knows everything. And if the context, John is speaking about our heart, sometimes your, your conscience makes you feel some, some way about something. John's saying, whatever your heart, your conscience is telling you, God is greater than that, and he is able to judge your conscience. God knows everything. What about Hebrews chapter 4? 
verses 12 to 13, starts off talking about God's word. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, pierces to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart, okay? And no creature is hidden from his sight. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Nothing can be hidden from God. God sees everything. He's able to hold everyone to account for everything that they've done. How about Psalm 10, which I think speaks particularly into the example that we have here in Genesis 18. David writes, and he says from verse 11, The wicked think God isn't watching us. He's closed his eyes. He won't even see what we do. Arise, O Lord, punish the wicked, O God. Do not ignore the helpless. Why do the wicked get away with despising God? They think God will never call us to account. But here's his conclusion. But you see the trouble and the grief they cause. You take note of it and you punish them. We'll see that come a little later. So why does God do this investigation here in Genesis chapter 18? If scripture really does teach that God really does know everything, why the investigation? I think God does it for our benefit. I think he does it so that due process cannot just be done, but can be seen to be done. He accommodates himself to us so that we can see why his judgment is just. Why a whole city had to be destroyed. Why this judgment is vindicated. And not just have a story about God destroying a bunch of people and going, wow, what a terrible God. So those are two things that the text raised, and I thought it would be good for us to deal with up front. Some of you might be thinking, that actually there's like a third thing. You know, what about the question of can God change his mind? Or perhaps more powerfully, can we change God's mind? And we'll talk about, a bit about that at the end of the passage. So at the end of the message, sorry, I promise. Stick with us. We'll get there. But let's look at some insights that we can gain into prayer as we look at this passage together. First, we're going to look at Abraham. Because Abraham sets an example for us of how we, as children of God, can also be praying. And the first thing I want us to notice about Abraham in his prayer with God is how God has regard for him. Abraham, is he's known by God. And just in God's opening soliloquy, he, he says some things. In verse 17, he says, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Verse 18, All the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. Verse 19, I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and household after him to keep the way of the Lord. You see, God and Abraham have a very special relationship. This is not like a God and Balaam moment with his donkey. God and Abraham are tight. They're close. God initiates this conversation with Abraham because he's chosen Abraham to be the patriarch of his own people. God's own people. He's chosen Abraham to be the spearhead of the kingdom of God that's beginning to come on earth. So God says, I'm going to draw Abraham into my plan. Now here's the thing that that makes this really beautiful because, you know, that's cool for Abraham. But the position Abraham enjoyed was unique in the Old Testament, but it is not unique anymore. This is why this is amazing. Remember Jesus in an argument with the Pharisees? He says, don't you know that God can raise up sons of Abraham from rocks and stones? See, Abraham's position was unique. But now for us, as we live under the new covenant, 
Abraham instead, he stands as a type for us, as a precursor, as an example of how God chooses to regard us. See, in John 15, 15, Jesus tells his disciples, he says, I no longer call you servants, because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends, for everything that I've learned from the Father, I've passed on to you. See, what Jesus does in this passage is he connects God's self-disclosure to friendship. He says, this is the thing that makes you friends, is to know one another's business. Essentially, he tells his disciples, and by extension us, that because God has decided to draw them into his confidence, the dynamic of their relationship has changed. They're no longer simply servants. They, they leveled up on the social tier. They can now count themselves friends with God. I feel like if I was Francis Chan, we would like pause here and just stop because that is in and of itself an incredible idea to count yourself a friend of the Almighty, of the Holy One, of the One who holds the universe together by the power of His being. It says you, you can call him friend. Wow. Okay. Wow. But a servant does something for his master because he gets told to do so. A friend does something for the, does the same thing for his friend because he loves him. See, God's decision to draw Abraham into this encounter reflects his disposition towards him. Because God had loved and chosen Abraham, he draws him in. And God has the same disposition towards each of us that have chosen to follow Jesus in our lives. He loves you and he's chosen you and he will willingly draw you into his confidence if you will but ask and wait. So that's our first insight in prayer, that God has deep regard for us. That's beautiful. Here's the second one. Abraham stands on the character of God. Having been drawn into this encounter by God, Abraham responds in a way which is quite interesting. He doesn't sit and wallow in the love and the goodness of God and drawing him into his presence on the simple blessing of being there. He begins an urgent intercession. Perhaps because he knows he's got a kinsman living in Sodom. Perhaps purely out of an altruistic heart. We'll, we'll never really know. But he begins pleading for the righteous people that live in Sodom. And he bases his opening position on the character of who God is. God, because I know that you are a just and a righteous God, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Verse 23. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the wicked fare as the righteous. Verse 25. And then he he makes this great summary statement. Shall not the judge of all the earth? Do what is just. And that great statement, it kind of beautifully frames this discussion. Because he places God in his rightful place. God is truly the judge of all the earth. His ways are above our ways. His thoughts are above our thoughts. He is perfectly just. And so his actions must be just. But there's also some beautiful nuance to these opening moments of prayer. For instance, a really significant question is what force Do you give to that statement of Abraham? Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Is it imperative? Is Abraham presuming to command God? Uh, In other words, God, as the judge of all the earth, you must do what is right. Is it inquisitive? Surely God, 
as the judge of all the earth. You will do what is right. If we probe a little deeper, there's some evidence that, that Abraham's contention that the Lord would not slay the righteous alongside the wicked, he hasn't fully understand, understood God's character perfectly. Because Jesus, in Luke 13, says sometimes God will allow something to happen and make no distinction between the righteous and the wicked. He's talking about a, a natural disaster where the Tower of Siloam falls down and a whole bunch of people die. Jesus said, it's not because anyone was more righteous or wicked. It just happened. And yet, as we'll see, in this moment, in this instance, God honors Abraham's prayer. So Abraham stands on his understanding of God's character. And even though he hasn't got that perfectly right, he's able to make his intercession alongside this confession that the Lord of all the earth will do what is right. See, I believe Abraham makes this, it's like a statement of faith for him. He's like, I know God. I know God is just and he will do what is right. And so he pleads with God for justice because he knows he can trust the character of God. Same is true for us in prayer. When we pray, and particularly when we desire God to act, we can and we should stand on God's character as he has revealed it to us. And we can trust in faith that he will act in accordance with his character because that's who he is. It's what he does. Are you, like Abraham, asking God for justice? Then stand on the righteousness of God. Are you struggling financially because things are really tough? Then stand on the promises of his provision for you. Are you overwhelmed and exhausted? Stand on his promises of rest. Friends, our prayers are empowered by our faith and our confident belief in the character of God. When we pray, let's start there. Thirdly, and perhaps most strikingly in this prayer, is the audacity which Abraham displays before God. See, as Abraham proceeds in his intercession with God, he kind of seems to grow in boldness. Abraham begins his address to the Lord in verse 23, and and several times during the back and forth, we see Abraham, and, and I want to use my mother's term here, Pushing his luck. You know, this is what she would say about me when I was a teenager. You know, it's it's a little bit like this teenager that's kind of testing the boundaries his parents have put up for him and, and seeing how much he can get away with. The dialogue is peppered with phrases like this. Since I have begun, let me speak further to my Lord. Verse 27. Verse 29. Then Abraham pressed his request further. Since I have dared to speak to the Lord, let me continue. Verse 31. Lord, please don't be angry with me. Let me speak one more time. Verse 32. It's as though as God reveals his graciousness to Abraham, it kind of spurs him on to successively keep on asking for more until he reaches 10 where he he seems to choose to leave at rest. And what makes Abraham's audacity in this prayer particularly interesting, and I found this, I found this really wonderful, is it feels like as you, as you read Abraham's prayer with God, it feels like a living example of the parable that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 11. In Luke chapter 11, verses 5 to 8, Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray. And he says this to them. He says, suppose you have a friend and you go to him at midnight and you say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I have no food to offer him. 
And suppose the one inside answers, bro, don't bother me. The door's already locked and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. It's 12 o'clock. Go away. I tell you, Jesus says, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. This is one of those teachings of Jesus that, that I think that makes me, and perhaps not just me, it makes us feel a bit uncomfortable. It just, it doesn't feel right to be presumptuous with God. It, it feels disrespectful. It feels inappropriate. Like we're afraid to ask God for what we really want because we want to be content with what we get. But this is the beauty of Abraham's example for us. Because Abraham didn't actually get what he asked for. Sodom and Gomorrah were not spared. But the righteous were. And isn't that beautiful? God finds a way of honoring Abraham's request and still bringing about the judgment that he knew needed to be meted out. And do you notice in his prayer that Abraham is never disrespectful to the Lord, even in his audacity? Do you notice the humility that just constantly underpins Abraham's prayer all the way through? Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I who am but dust and ashes. Please, Lord, please, Lord, don't, please, Lord, don't be angry. It says twice, verses 30 and 32. Isn't it beautiful how Jesus speaks about the relationship between friendship and audacity? And we see that beautifully modeled here in Abraham, who is described, by the way, in the Old Testament as the friend of God. See, in friendship, God graciously chooses to reveal his plan to us. And with that friendship comes the freedom to petition him with audacity and to act according to, to ask him to act according to his character. Abraham's interactions in Genesis 18 give us a real life example of what Jesus was talking about when he taught his disciples to pray with a shameless audacity. Friends, we have the same freedom to approach God. We have the same freedom to to call him to act according to his character. And we have Jesus' assurance that he will surely give us as much as we need. In Abraham's case, the salvation of those few in sorrow. So when you pray, pray with audacity. That's Abraham as our example. Let's turn our attention now to the other part of this prayer, God, and see what God reveals about himself in this prayer, and what we can learn for ourselves. First thing that I think is so beautiful is that God is gracious with us in prayer. One of the things we see about God in this prayer is the gracious way in which he deals with Abraham. Throughout their interaction, God never gets angry with Abraham. Even though Abraham was super presumptuous and he questions God a parent's decision, even when Abraham presses God far beyond the place where they started, Twice in his prayer, Abraham says, God, please, please don't be angry. Don't be angry with me. And we see God honor that request. He doesn't get angry with Abraham. There's something beautiful in that. There's something beautiful, especially when we're aware of our own sinfulness. Now, maybe some of you have, have you know, been Christians for a really long time, and God has just so worked in your heart and in your character that there's just nothing left that you have to be ashamed of when you come before the Lord. You know, and that's, that's awesome. Praise the Lord. Because that's where we want to go. But some of you, sometimes, I know, for me, like this, sometimes there's this thought that it's, man, it's difficult to approach God. I'm dealing with my stuff. 
because you feel unworthy. Or perhaps that, that if God really knew who you were and what you had done, he wouldn't really ever want to speak to you. I remember having conversations with friends of mine. They're like, God just, if God knew me, he wouldn't be interested. First, I mean, the thing is, God really knows everything about all of us. Right? But this prayer shows us that God is gracious to those who come to him in prayer. And we don't need to fear the wrath of God in prayer. That God does deal gently with us even when we come boldly before him. If we come in humility. If we come with respect and honor to the great king. God deals graciously with us in prayer. Second thing that God reveals about himself. And I think this is really beautiful. Is, is God's mercy and justice bring balance into our prayers even when we don't have them. See, Abraham's example shows us that prayer is not a means by which we can make people, all people happy. And this is a very, this is an unusual thing to notice here, but it's really significant. Have you ever had this experience? I'm sure you have, right? Because it's a very well-meaning experience. Anyone ever said to you, hey, you know, so-and-so, my, my family member, my friend, my acquaintance, this person that I know, they're in hospital. Please, will you pray for them? And the assumption is we should pray for them so that they will get well. Because, you know, we don't like to be sick or terminally ill. The question that, that Abraham's prayer raises here and God's response to it is, is, is that always God's purpose? Is it always God's purpose to to fulfill the things that we would like to see happen. Perhaps that person has been running from God, and this illness or this accident is God's way of getting his attention. I mean, that's Roland's story. Maybe God is graciously trying to teach some other lesson. It, and, and the question for us to just be aware of is, is it possible that God might have an intention that is other than the instant deliverance of this person who's in this place? See, in this prayer, Abraham, he asks for the deliverance of a city and he cries out for forbearance for, from God for the sake of the righteous few. That's what Abraham's desire is. He's like, God, please do not rain down fire and brimstone. God hears his plea, but instead chooses to save the righteous from judgment. Because in this way, he, his purposes are better served. See, in this way, God has shown Abraham that he is serious about sin and righteousness. It's not a joke. And Abraham has been called to be the, the patriarch of the family that's going to become the people of God. And he's got to model God's way of living to the world. And God needs to show him that sin is a serious deal and righteousness to God is important. But he's also showing Abraham that God will deliver the righteous out of the hands of calamity. See, an understanding of God's mercy and his justice as they couple together, will lead us to recognize that whilst we may petition God to act, and we should, and trust him to act in accordance with his character, and we can, God will choose to act so that his purposes and ends come to be. And this can be a reminder for us to, to really to also be praying for those things that are beyond the obvious. Yes, it's wonderful to see someone healed from an illness, but it's even more wonderful to see them commit their lives in service to Jesus and find everlasting life in his kingdom. So let's be aware of the things beyond the obvious as well and to be trusting for God's will and his, his way to come about as we pray. Thirdly and finally, 
God acts on Abraham's prayer. I mean, let, let's talk about that as we wrap up for just, because this is significant. See, Genesis chapter 19, verse 29, so a chapter later, a chapter and a half later, <clears throat> tells us this. It's after the story, after the judgment has come. But God listened to Abraham's request and kept Lot safe, removing him from the disaster that engulfed the cities on the plain. That statement, just by itself, shows us how significant Abraham's prayer was. God had listened to Abraham's request and kept Lot safe. For ourselves, we could say that God listened to the prayers of Connect as we've prayed, as we've pleaded with the Lord. And God brought about reconciliation. Genesis 19.29 clearly shows us that God chose to act because of Abraham's prayer. There's a causal link that exists between these two things. And that is something that is both incredibly encouraging and amazing and really challenging. It's tangible proof in the scriptures that God chooses to act because his people pray. To put it in a nutshell, prayer works. Prayer works. God wants us to pray because prayer works. Prayer doesn't just shape us as we pray. I mean, it does that. It doesn't just make us more attentive to the spirits. It it does that too. But it acts upon the heart of God. Just as the outrage from Sodom had arisen up to God and, and God had heard that in a negative way, so Abraham's prayers have moved the heart of God and he has chosen to act in answer to them. Now, there's a whole deep well of God's sovereignty intertwined with human responsibility that some of you are going to want to plumb out here. And I grant you that would be deeply intellectually stimulating. It, it really would be, be a great chat. It would also be a great time to ask the question, can we change God's mind? Let me remind you, though, that at no time in this dialogue did God ever tell Abraham what he was going to do beyond an investigation. So I think he might have a difficult case to build. Friends, that's that's not the point of this message. And we've already been going for 34 minutes, so we're not going to go any longer. If all you end up doing after reading this passage is digging deeper into the scholarly debates on how these two ideas intermingle, you are going to have missed the heart cry of the text. God wants us to know that he cares about how we pray. He cares about how we pray. Remember, God is the one who decided to bring Abraham into his council in the first place. And then after having spoken with Abraham in prayer, God chooses to act on his prayers. God wants his people to pray so that he can act. James, in the New Testament, he tells us that Elijah was a man just like us. And he prayed earnestly that it wouldn't rain. And it didn't rain in the land for three and a half years. But he's a man just like you. He's just like me. Jesus told us, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself in the sea, and doesn't doubt in his heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. God, Guys, God is trying to give us a message. And it's a very simple message. Come and trust me in prayer. Rely on me and I will show you the mighty power of the Lord. Depend on me in prayer and see how I answer you. Friends, let us come boldly before our God in prayer. Because that's how our Father has invited us to approach. I'm going to close now and I'm going to close by by praying for us that we would grow 
in our prayer. But, but first and before I do that, I'm aware that this passage runs parallel to, this, to a story of judgment and the justice of God. And then if you're sitting, listening to this at the moment, you, you might not follow Jesus. You might have turned away from following Jesus. And then I, I have to say there's a warning if you're in that space. There's a calling to hear God's desire for your salvation, but there's a, there's a, a warning to recognize sin in your life and what God ultimately does with sin. Because every Christian, you know, every real Christian has been delivered out of the judgment that Lot was delivered out of. That was our due. That is all of our dues. And yet God delivers the righteous out. And Lot was saved by grace, not for his own righteousness, but because of Abraham's prayer. In the same way, salvation is offered graciously through Jesus to any who seek it. So if as you've sat and listened to me today... There's been the little voice of the Spirit just tweaking you, poking you, touching your heart, reminding you, saying, you need to get right with the Lord. Maybe you need to think about coming back. You need to turn your heart towards Jesus. You need to be aware that the track you're on ultimately ends in destruction. God's offer of salvation is there. And I would love to have a conversation with you. If you have Christian friends, I'd love to invite you to engage them to start that conversation. Because knowing Jesus is one of the most wonderful and beautiful things you could ever do in your life. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the power of your word and your goodness to us. Thank you that you are a God who invites us in, who draws us into your confidence. Thank you that we can come to you boldly. We can come boldly before your throne of grace to find mercy in our time of need. Thank you that's your promise to us. I pray, Lord, you would grow in us a a confidence to to come before you, to come into your presence, to, to come to your throne and to ask you for grace. I pray, Lord, you would teach us to trust in your character, to know that you will do what you have said you will do, to know who you are and that you act in accordance with who you are. And I pray, Lord, teach us to grow in audacity with humility. Teach us to grow in audacity with humility, God. May we come boldly before you. May we be shameless in asking you for that which comes out of who you are. And may we see the righteousness of God realized in the world around us. I pray this, Lord, in your wonderful name, King Jesus, for the sake of your name and your kingdom. We pray together. Amen. Friends, thank you so much for being with us today. Have a wonderful rest of your day. I'll see you again soon. Bye-bye.